ADO and Nella Benown Studios presents Homo Sapiens, I Hear You, a monthly research seminar challenging the status quo on everything from sleep to security and consumption, deconstruction and rebuilding Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a new generation of thinkers. The series is created by and hosted at ADO. ADO is a space in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, dedicated to exploring the boundaries and the future of design. It is open to everyone who seeks to be inspired. ADO is an initiative of many and reflects a fundamental belief that designers hold the keys to progress. To learn more about ADO and their research programs or attend the next seminar, visit a-d-o.com. This is Elle Clay, and I want to welcome you to Homo Sapiens I Hear You, a monthly podcast exploring human behavior and physiological needs through conversations and stories from innovators and thought leaders. Sleep is important. It's a critical period in which a lot of processing, restoration, and strengthening occurs. We spend a third of our life asleep. Newborns sleep up to 17 hours a day. When you need to mull something over, people suggest sleeping on it. What I wasn't so clear on was why. There had to be more to sleep than just rest. I would soon find out that the work truly starts when our eyes close. Starting in the bedroom, we follow an oniric thread that leads us to rest stops with an economist, a prolific filmmaker, transcendental meditation, and tie things up with hypnosis. This is dreamland. As technology advances and devices get smarter, people are sleeping less. What does that mean for the future? At my first rest stop, I am greeted by Nobel Prize winner and economist Dr. Graciela Chinchoniski. I was surprised to learn that productivity would not be the only thing to suffer from a lack of sleep in the future. I see people having disconnected um, concerns about themselves and they are sleeping. The other aspect of sleeping that I know about is that it is a part of your life that you spend it in other dimensions which are at least as important as the dimension that we think we're in right now, and probably more important. So it's like being, again, disconnected from uh, global connectivity, which is the other dimensions. So if we don't sleep enough, we're going to be sick, and we're going to be disconnected disconnected from ourselves, disconnected from reality, disconnected from reality. Bonjour. I am Dr. Nelly Benayoun and you are listening to Somewhere in Dreamland. Silence your mobile. Close your eyes. Where am I? I don't remember falling asleep. Lost in my subconscious mind, I needed an explanation. How did I get here? Then I was visited by someone I knew could set the scene, Douglas Trumbull, a cinematic pioneer. He's most famous for special effects and creating some of the greatest films of all time. Douglas knew exactly where we were. He spent years practicing holotropic breathwork, a technique developed by Stanislaw Grof and his wife in the 1970s. Using music and accelerated breathing, an individual enters into a non-ordinary state of consciousness. This state activates the natural inner healing process of the psyche, bringing the seeker a particular set of internal experiences. After that, he came to the United States from Czechoslovakia and realized that he had to figure out a way to do something really profoundly therapeutic without drugs. 
and he developed this thing he calls holotropic breathwork, which is a way of breathing very, very aggressively uh, in a controlled setting. And you can learn to do it. You could probably find someone here in New York or anywhere in the United States that does holotropic breathwork. And uh, you need to be with someone to kind of help you do it because what you're going to do is you're going to override your own natural breathing rhythm and you're going to breathe more and you're going to get more oxygen. And it's going to take you about five minutes to get into some emotional state where stuff is going to come up that's extremely profoundly important to you personally. That's an issue. And you'll, you'll never know what issue is going to come up. You can't direct it. You can't control it. But when it comes up, you can deal with it right then and there, which is crying, screaming, being angry, being furious, being in love, being passionate, being whatever. And I found generally after maybe about an hour of this process, I would resolve it. And I would end up laughing hysterically in relief that I'd finally, finally gotten rid of that problem. And so I recommend this as a really powerful experiential thing that's kind of like dreaming because you're, you're lying on your back, you're in a dark room, maybe someone's playing a little bit of music for mood or something, but it's about you, it's about inside you. In 1983, during the filming of Brainstorm, Natalie Wood tragically died. Douglas found solace in holotropic breathwork. Dream work is like your inner consciousness, and I found out that I could access my inner consciousness or my subconscious more directly through this technique than I could dreaming at night, which was like not a big deal. So I found it was much deeper, much more profound and much more useful to me. And so every time in my life since then, since I learned this technique and I hit a crisis, I had some emotional problem or some roadblock or some business problem or some whatever, some you know personal nightmare, I would often just go up in the attic or find some quiet place where I could do this by myself which would often result in me screaming, shouting, kicking, yelling at people, cursing, and I would get it out. There was something about the, the, the heavy breathing would allow me to kind of resolve what it was that was troubling me, and then I would get better. And I, it turned out to be well, way better than drugs and a lot cheaper and, and much more successful for me. And so it's actually helped me through a lot of challenging times in my life. Solidifying his place in cinematic history with the groundbreaking special effects in 2001, A Space Odyssey, Douglas was an expert on outer space. Was there a common thread between outer space and the subconscious mind? When I was starting out as a young artist in the movie industry, I was working at a, a small company called Graphic Films that was doing animated films, and we were very interested in space. So we were making films for NASA and the Air Force about the Apollo program at the time. And these films were shown to senators and congresspeople about raising money for Apollo, you know, as, as part of uh, the whole moon program. And um, so it wasn't seen by the public. But anyway, I'm getting really educated about spacey stuff. And I'm a naturally spacey kind of guy. And I grew up reading science fiction, Heinlein and Arthur Clarke and all these writers. So I was very well steeped in alien planets and other dimensions and, and stuff like that. And... Um, when I was at Graphic, we, we found a copy of a film called Universe that was made by the National Film Board of Canada back in the early 60s. And it was narrated by a man named Douglas Rain. And it was animated, black and white, like a trip through the universe. 
And one of the things that's mentioned by the narrator in the movie is that we're moving at the speed of a god. We're, we're looking at the universe from a point of view that's almost like God. And so as the camera moves or as you view these galaxies colliding or um, quasars exploding or whatever, it's like we're moving at billions of light years a second to see time compressed into, into a few seconds of animation of some cosmic space event, okay? And that was kind of a, a real eye-opener for me that the human mind has this capacity to imagine things that are outside the bounds of the limitations of physics or reality or, or even science. And that, that was kind of the part of my growing up as an artist. And then I worked on this film called To the Moon and Beyond at Graphic Films, which was for the New York World's Fair. It was a space film. It was like powers of 10. It went from the microcosm to the macrocosm in 15 minutes. And um, I was very young at the time. I was maybe 22, 23 years old. And I animated a lot of the content of this movie, which was stars and space and amoebas and a microcosm. And, and this movie was seen by Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, who were planning to make a movie called Journey Beyond the Stars, which turned into 2001 A Space Odyssey. So that led to me getting a job working on 2001 because I was doing illustrations for them in the early design phase of 2001 uh, under a contract at Graphic and then Kubrick moved to England to make the movie and I called Kubrick and I said, hey, I've been working on your movie. I'd love to come and continue. And so he hired me to go to England, which I, I worked on 2001 for two and a half years. It, it profoundly changed my life and my worldview and my skill set and we made this movie that was an extraordinary visual spectacle that was like outside the normal boundaries of movie melodrama. There was a lot of stuff going on in 2001 it had nothing to do with plot or character development or dialogue or conflict or any of the other normal components of movies. It was this experiential thing. And when MGM rebranded the movie as The Ultimate Trip, Everybody said, oh, I get it. It's a trip. And so people would smoke pot, come to the theater, and, and trip out. And so that actually created the success of 2001 because it was an altered state. It was a psychedelic trip experience that was drug-free and non-toxic. When creating other worlds with the dimensions only one can imagine, how did he approach a fictional character's behavior? When Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke got together to make 2001, it was based on a short story that Arthur had written previously called The Sentinel. And the story, which was developed into 2001, the movie, was a story about a, a very highly evolved, super intelligent, super powerful civilization of something that was so weird that we couldn't con conceivably understand what it was. It's not little green men or aliens or UFOs or flying saucers or anything. It was an intelligence that was like beyond our comprehension. And it was an intelligence that was almost omniscient and almost omnipotent, like God, but not God. That was the idea. And so the movie was about evolution. It was about uh, when mankind was able to actually get to the moon, i.e. the Apollo program. You know, we could get to the moon. That was like a rite of passage that would create a qualifying leap that once they got to the moon, they would find this thing that was buried there for them to find, for the purpose of them to find. 
And when they find it, it sends a message to Jupiter, which is the next step. And when they get to Jupiter, they're going to be brought, drawn into some evolutionary process, which is about moving beyond being ape men. You know, the movie started out with these Australopithecus ape men who can't talk, kind of think a little bit, but they're not really great. And they're dying off, and the aliens intervene. The monolith shows up to say, eh, you guys ought to learn how to use weapons because that'll help you survive. If you learn how to kill animals, you'll eat meat and you'll get protein and you'll evolve to the next step. That was what the first phase of 2001 was about. And so suddenly you have that jump cut, you know, the bone in the, thrown in the air, which was the weapon used by the ape man, becomes a, a nuclear weapon orbiting the earth. And Kubrick tamped down the idea of a nuclear weapon because he had made um, Dr. Strangelove. Okay, so Dr. Strangelove is about nuclear weapons getting completely out of control under, you know, misguided human uh, mis misuse. And so he didn't want to get labeled as a guy who had a big issue about nuclear weapons. So the, the fact that the bone in 2001 cuts to a nuclear orbiting weapon was kind of cut down. Kubrick didn't want to make a big point out of that, and it wasn't picked up on by people until much later. But anyhow, that's what the movie actually does, because you have this evolutionary leap happening in one cut. They say it's the biggest jump cut of movie history. And so they go on this adventure, and they arrive at Jupiter, and there's only one guy left, and he goes, he gets sucked into this Stargate, which is this transformational um, transformation through time and space to another dimension. And the dimension is his own consciousness. The room that he's in is a memory that he has. Rachel, where am I? Rachel, where am I? Your mind is experiencing restful alertness. I'd arrived at a new rest stop. This time, my guide was Rachel Katz, lead instructor for David Lynch Foundation's Women's Initiative for Transcendental Meditation. Transcendental Meditation is uh, from India. It's about 5,000 plus years old from a Vedic tradition. It is the usage of the mind knowing the mind's properties to be limitless and always seeking the greatest field of happiness and using a sound or mantra that has no meaning to turn the mind inward and transcend the act of thinking mind to finer states of consciousness, more expanded levels. Explaining transcendental meditation as an ancient practice, how could it be applied to modern issues? So a lot of... Um, my clients are, my students uh, are survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault. And you will ask someone who has gone through that, how do they feel? And nine times out of 10, outside of their body, not in the body. Um, and uh, shame, blame, low self-esteem, um, feeling scattered maybe uh, because of the trauma, um, depressed, tired, anxious, all of these things that come from that. And um, when they start to uh, get that rest and that clarity of mind, it's very empowering. It's a word that is maybe overused a lot, but to have 
a technique that you can do on your own. You don't have to wait for a therapy appointment. You don't have to buy medication or, you know, um, manage the symptoms or uh, side effects of meditate or medication. But meditation is it's natural and you get to do it on your own at will. And so that's specifically very empowering. And then once your clarity starts kicking in um, and your body starts feeling better and you have more energy, um, everything else starts to fall into place. And it's really exciting. Could this transcending rest replace traditional sleep? I'm asked this question a lot, and the body is gaining deep rest in a way that the mind is still alert, but the body is able to heal and repair itself on a level that is different from taking a nap. For example, a lot of my students have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress um, or anxiety, depression. And as we know, you cannot nap off anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress. So there's something going on that is unique when you are doing transcendental meditation versus sleeping. The mind has two specific properties. Um, One, that it is limitless. We can imagine anything we want. It's very expansive, the mind. Um, And two, the mind is always seeking what's most pleasing. It's always going to the greatest, most fulfilling uh, field of happiness. So uh, maybe an example of that is your friend gives you a good book to read. In the first couple of chapters, you're like, you know, going off thinking about other things and you're not focusing on it. And you're like, why did they give me this book? And then the second chapter, you're just in it. And it's just seamless. You're just drawn into it. It's very fascinating. Um, Your mind is primed to go to what's fulfilling and get engaged in it. Um, So the yogis thought, well, if we could turn the mind inward or our consciousness inward, it would seek itself. Itself being the greatest level of happiness, most fulfilling place which is completely unbounded. So we use a mantra or sound to hook the awareness inward. It's You get instruction to um, use it easily and effortlessly. There are some steps. So you do get um, a teacher to guide you while you're doing it um, to make sure it's effortless. Uh, And then the mind naturally travels inward. It wants to seek itself. And um, there's a lot of ancient words to describe this space, nirvana being one of them. Um, Nirvana means the ultimate state, mind-body freedom. And uh, we've been doing this for thousands of years. It's a natural state that the body can access, the mind can access. We've just lost contact with it, or we don't do it culturally daily. We typically are more outward-oriented during the day in our physical world, and the mind is frustrated because it's in boundaries all the time. It doesn't get to play and behave the way it wants to. Um, And then we go to sleep, and we have those two styles of functioning, sleep and um, dreaming. So when we transcend, we have a fourth state of physiological functioning, bodies deeply rested, but mind's alert, mind's awake. And when people come out of the meditation after about 20 minutes, 
they feel refreshed, they feel clear, and we have more access to prefrontal cortex instead of our more reactive um, amygdala fight, flight, freeze. So it's very refreshing for all minds. Alex, am I still asleep? Zero. One. Two. Three. Four. And five. Eyes open and wide awake. I wasn't asleep. I've been hypnotized by Alexandra Ginelli, hypnotherapist and life coach of Modern Sanctuary in New York City. So when you're in the hypnotic state, there are going to be rapid eye movements that are happening. As you begin to fall asleep, you do go through the hypnotic states. Call them a light, medium, and deep. Eye movement does happen as you go through the light state. And these are cues that we look for as hypnotherapists. We're going to look for the eyes fluttering up and down first. And then as you go a bit more towards the deeper states, you're going to see the eyes begin to rock side to side. And so there is a, like a very similar thing that can happen to REM in sleep and hypnosis. Then why was I experiencing similar sleep patterns? So when you're in the hypnotic state, there are going to be rapid eye movements that are happening. As you begin to fall asleep, you do go through the hypnotic states. Call them a light, medium, and deep. Eye movement does happen as you go through the light state. And these are cues that we look for as hypnotherapists. We're going to look for the eyes fluttering up and down first. And then as you go a bit more towards the deeper states, you're going to see the eyes begin to rock side to side. And so there is a, like a very similar thing that can happen to REM in sleep and hypnosis. If our mind is an alternate universe that holds all of our most vulnerable thoughts and unresolved issues, how is hypnotherapy able to unlock it all? To isolate the mind, what we're working with really is the subconscious mind. So the mind has two parts, conscious mind, subconscious mind. You can think of your conscious mind like a tightly woven net. Everything that I'm saying to you in the awake conscious state gets caught in that net and it's taken off to be processed, to be made logical, rational, reasonable. We use deductive reasoning. As you begin to fall asleep, you can think of that netting beginning to open up and get wider so that the things that I'm saying can begin to pass through, we bypass the conscious mind to begin to open up to the subconscious mind, which is much more creative. And the subconscious mind, everything is learned through association. So from the moment that you're born until today is learned. It's an experience. So for example, if as a child you touch a stove and you burn your finger, you're going to associate and link in Stoves are hot. Therefore, when you're around a stove, you're going to behave differently and you're going to know it's hot. Therefore, you might back off. But then the logical mind will kick in to tell you it's off, it's fine, right? The logic will help you take down that reaction. And so what we're doing as we begin to go into the subconscious mind is we're opening up these associations for inspection. We're beginning to create a free flow of information without the logical mind going, yeah, but. And I see it all the time with my clients too. They're always like, they're, they'll begin to get down into the emotions of what we're talking about. And then you'll hear them go, yeah, but. And that's their logical mind just cutting it off. When clients leave my session, the first thing that they're going to notice is they feel very calm. 
you know, because you're coming up out of that sort of mid-range, I'm not awake, I'm not asleep, you're going to feel much more relaxed. That'll be the first most immediate benefit that you're going to notice. Now, because you're going into the subconscious mind to create and offer new associations, right, the idea is if someone came in with a fear of dogs, first step is I need to understand what are you coming in here for? Is it that you want to love a dog? Do you want, or is it that just you want to be around them and feel comfortable, calm, relaxed, and in control? So I need to find what the verbiage is, what the language is that's going to resonate the most with you when I'm in your subconscious mind. Once we put you in the hypnotic state and we've opened up your mind and your subconscious, I go in to negotiate with your associations to say, What are you willing to let go of, which is a fear of dogs, to receive, which is comfort, calm, and in control around them? Now, when you come up and out of the hypnotic state after we've planted the hypnotic suggestions, there's no dogs around. So you're not going to know right away in this particular case if that association has been accepted. The idea is that if someone were to see a dog, that association is going to click in and they're going to feel a new behavior from that trigger occur, which would hopefully be calm, relaxed, and in control. Now, certain associations you're going to feel right away, and certain ones are going to have a delayed reaction. It just depends. I was spending so much time in my restful state, I began to wonder what it all was for. It seemed to me that even while I was asleep, my mind was still at work. I think of your mind like a cup. It's a finite vessel that can we can process information, right? It's kind of like things come in, but things need to come out too. If there's nothing emptying the cup, it's going to start to overflow. And when hypnosis is very similar of that you're giving so many cues, so much to think about that when the mind is given it's a when the mind is given an escape, like for example, sleep, which the mind knows what sleep is or close your eyes, it's almost like you begin to escape and disconnect, and then the cup begins to empty. So one of the things that you can do as a hypnotist is have people stare directly at the wall, overstimulate them, and then have them close their eyes. You're going to automatically begin to feel a release of relaxation because you're disconnecting a sense. You're taking away a stimulus so the cup can empty. I think this generation has so much stimulus coming at them, and they're they're these incredible machines that can process information. What I've seen with the clients that I've worked worked with who are in that younger 20 age bracket, they're incredibly intelligent, highly articulate, and they're able to process a lot of information, but they don't know what to do in the quiet moments because there's even more noise from the cup beginning to empty out. I've taken various modes of transportation through dreamland, learning that there's no wrong way to reach the subconscious. Armed with this new knowledge, I would enter my nightly eight hours with a newfound respect and anticipation of what and who I might encounter. L, wake up, L. L, L, L. On the next episode of Homo Sapiens, I Hear You, We will explore food, consumption, tables, carnivores, and kitchen stories as a part of our February seminar, The Last Supper.